Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Everyone, welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Gemma John, who is the founder and director of Human City, also the co-editor of Speaking for the Social, a catalog of methods, and a convener of the uh, one of the AASA Woolai World um, Needs Anthropologists Applied Clubs, known as the Anthropology of in the Built Environment. And so, Gemma, thanks for joining me today. Would you mind by telling everybody about how you got interested in anthropology? Goodness, I've always been interested in anthropology. Um, did an undergraduate in anthropology, uh, kind of, kind of not, not, not so common, I guess, um, at Edinburgh University. So that was at the, the age of 19, started that. But actually, that was born out of an interest in art. I was very artistic. Um, my mother was an art teacher, so that was kind of almost my calling that I ended up going into anthropology. And for me, art and anthropology were very aligned. So art was and is an exploration of uh, subjectivity, what it is to be human, our role in the world, subject-object dynamics. Um, and I found that some of those conceptual ideas were better explored in anthropology than I felt they were being explored in art. Um, so I started an anthropology degree um, at Edinburgh University, which was a four-year degree. Then met my supervisor in my final year, which was um, focused on a dis- writing a dissertation that was about 30% of um, the mark at the time. Um, so it was a big chunk of our time, big focus uh, for the students, um, got on very well with my supervisor. And uh, he moved to St Andrews University. So I ended up moving with him to do a PhD to extend my thinking on specific topics. So and stayed in anthropology until... But 2014, so that was kind of my my younger years, 1990. I'm giving a lot away here. 1998 to 2014, big chunk of my life. You made the comment about how you got an undergraduate degree, and that's relatively uncommon. So, you know, especially in the states, it is quite uncommon for a lot of high school students or younger to even come across anthropology. So, how did how were you aware of it at that age? I literally um, looked through graduate prospectuses. So I sat and I remember sitting with my friend um, and we were kind of going, oh gosh, you know, age 16 or 17, we had to start, start making decisions about, you know, where we were going to study, what we were going to study. And so we looked through undergraduate prospectuses and anthropology really just stood up as a, a subject because of its focus on uh, what, you know, personhood, what it is to be human in the world, how we orientate ourselves. I loved those questions. Tell us a little bit about, you know, as you're wrapping up your PhD, um, you know, obviously this podcast is very concerned with practicing. How did you sort of figure out that, 
you know, you wanted to make your way out of academia and into more of an applied context? Um, I was working at the time as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Manchester um, at the Centre for Research on Social Cultural Change, and that closed in 2014. Um, funding came to an end, but it was a very, very successful centre, very outward facing, very focused on um, input into policy making, into input into strategic decision making, and very broad. It was an interdisciplinary centre um, focusing on a number of themes. Um, and I was part of a particular conversation, but that really led my, <clears throat> and made me interested in, in you know, the, the applied side. It was kind of how can anthropology and anthropological thinking inform policy? How can it inform practical decision-making? How can it uh, play a role uh, in engineering and um, other kinds of infrastructure practices? So that took me kind of my, my meant my lens, my focus shifted towards the applied um, space but also I'm I guess I had a kind of internal driver to want it to be useful <laughs> which I mean any anthropologist would, would 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 critique as being a kind of construct which I get but at the same time I still had this internal driver to want to be practically useful so I, I decided I kind of probably knew enough you know I had a lot of I had a, I was part of amazing conversations I um, I loved those conversations, but the I had this kind of internal drive to kind of then now kind of put those conversations to practice, really kind of work out where I had a role in, in the world as an anthropologist. That's where it kind of took me outside of academia. And I just took the leap, actually. It was a very brave decision. Everyone said at the time, at the time it made total sense to me, but everyone said it was very brave just to, to leave um, and decide to look to commercial organizations for a role. Um, I didn't necessarily know what that role would be, um, but I did a lot of research as you know, academics do around where a potential fit for me could be. And I just appealed to that space and said, you know, you need to hire me and, and went from there. And so could you tell us a little bit more about how that actually played out? You know, like what um, so you did your research, you sort of identified a few targets. Uh, how did you at that time approach that? Uh, because still at that time, while there was more, you know, while it was becoming, a, you know, at least popular enough in the States, it, it certainly wasn't the dominant narrative. So like, just tell us a little bit about that. I guess I carved it out for myself, which is then quite difficult to to explain and, 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 and support others in kind of taking, making that transition, which I, which is what I do now. But um, I really was interested in the relationship between people and buildings um, or people and the built environment at the time, even within academia. Um, and so I wondered if there was a space where the, those two were in conversation. So how do people shape buildings and buildings shape people? And I, it wasn't my academic background at all. My academic background was elsewhere. Um, but I decided that actually that was really, really where I wanted to be. Um, so I actually made a decision to do a kind of a, a course that then um, was almost a kind of segue into industry. So um, I did a course in interior design, which um, for me was a very practical decision of how do I shift from academia into the built environment? Well, I had to show that I was interested, right? Up to that point, I hadn't really demonstrated on my CV or, um, you know, to the out outside world that I, that, 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 um, that I had an interest or I had an ability to work in that space. So I did an interior design course um, because, as I said, going back to the beginning, I had a background in art. 
Um, and so I had um, that experience that I then took into the interior design course. Um, and that's what put me into the interior design course um, that lasted for a year. And it was designed specifically for people in transition, the mid-career course. Um, so I was surrounded by other people who were also mid-career, who were shifting from um, one sector into another. So some were shifting from the financial sector into design, others shifting from marketing into design. A lot of people were doing that uh, career shift in my course. And I just happened to be coming from academia into industry. Great. And so, you know, I can understand the connection between art and interior design, but what was it about the built environment that had, you know, spoke to you so much, especially since that's kind of continued as a thread through your career now? I think, I mean, particularly, as I said, I did some research and it was that kind of more conceptual question around how people shape um, space and, and space shapes people. I mean, the, 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 the focus, the theme I was in at Crest, Centre for Research on Social Cultural Change, focused on infrastructure. Um, and so infrastructure was kind of there in the background for me. Um, by infrastructure, they mean technical infrastructure, so much more um, construction, engineering, planning, so, you know, your, your large infrastructure. Um, but it kind of, you know, it, 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 it sparked something for me around, you know, what, 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 you know, what it is to dwell in a city, how cities and buildings and physical infrastructure shapes people. So there was, there was this ongoing conversation, even within Crest, around material um, infrastructure, material, um, materiality and, um, and, 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 uh, personhood, um, which is, it is an ongoing debate within anthropology, uh, which is focused on, um, different ways of thinking about what it is to be human and the interrelation between physical and human things. Um, so I, I guess it was a kind of very conceptual decision. Um, and then drawing on my background in art, and it was always kind of very practical, which is where do I think, you know, what, what story do I think I can tell and how do I think I can tell it, um, in, in, with a view to getting a job? Because this is a very, you know, to leave academia was a very practical decision. Um, and I had to realistically also at the end of it be able to say, this is why you should hire me. Um, so it was kind of making sure all the ducks were in the row and that I had a story to tell, which is exactly what I told around, you know, being focused on infrastructure and academia. Um, just to touch on my PhD topic, my PhD topic was about knowledge and what knowledge is, the philosophy of knowledge, and that, that very much underpins um, our understanding of the future of work and transformations in, in cities more broadly around different understandings of knowledge and how knowledge works. So I, I could tell a story around why I shifted from academia into industry. Um, my art helped or my background in art helped with that transition into the, the course um and so i think you know for anyone i guess kind of the, the takeaway for, for and this is what i always say to people is for, for anyone transitioning out of academia into industry then there needs to be a, a good story behind that you need to be able to tell a story that makes sense to people in terms of what are the logical connections between you know what you studied what you're doing what job you want um and a story that's easy to access right a story that's not hard and complicated a story that just makes sense um, and so for me i was kind of practically trying to find out what that story could be and then be able to tell it in in the context of a hiring uh, situation so tell us a little bit about your current company so human city um you now beyond just the maybe traditional built environment interested in sustainability so maybe how did that 
you know, let's maybe first talk about how that you made that journey from the build environment to sort of sustainability, and then get a little bit into the to the organization itself. Uh, so that was, I guess, that's easier to answer in terms of when you're in industry, right? You're suddenly focused on the market and what the market wants. You know, who is the market? What is the market? Is obviously a question for academia, but for us, the market is a specific group of people, and you know, you supply and demand. You supply what they're interested in, and at the time of setting up Human City, um, I really wanted to explore more meaningfully uh, what contribution anthropology or anthropological thinking could make to the built environment broadly. Um, but more specifically, there, there was a market demand or need for focus on um, what was called at the time social value, or still is known as social value. It was a particular um, area of focus within Europe at the moment, and UK in particular, um, that is kind of aligned with social impact, which is what, how can, can the built environment demonstrate how it's having a positive impact on, on communities and local people and, and tenants, so on the social. So um, people kept on calling me and saying, you know, you're an anthropologist, you know about the socials, tell me, you know, how do I, how do I demonstrate that I've listened to the social in the context of planning development? And I went, okay, cool, yeah, I can do the social, that's what you want, I can do that for you. Um, let's see, let's, let's think about where to start. So that then immediately led me to kind of work out how do I do ethnography in, in the context of, um, specific developments. Um, and that was place-based ethnography. So understanding what local need looked like, um, in a particular place, um, and involved going to speak to people, engaging with them on the ground. Um, and then that would inform a strategic approach to the development and then um, enable the developer to demonstrate it's not only listened, but implemented um, some, um, I guess, kind of uh, considerations in the context of development so that it could um, explain to a local authority that um, in the long term, it will have a positive impact on this you know, group of people in, in, in which um, the, the development is situated. So. You know, it, it was it was kind of born out of a need, um, and then I put my head to it as anthropology thinking, because how can anthropology help resolve this challenge of what does social sustainability look like for uh, you know the built environment? How can we uh, support planners in developing better buildings? Um, how can anthropological thinking inform planning um, at quite a detailed level? Um, so yeah, that's it. Was very much kind of as a result of of um, an emerging need um, in in the UK um, and more broadly Europe. That's changed over the last five years, evolved. Yeah, and it's an emerging need, obviously, in the states, and I presume in some you know many other places as well. And so, I'd like to maybe just stay on that topic briefly because I suspect many listeners out there might have an interest in getting into this space in the future. And so. Could you share with us a little bit about what you're learning about sustainability in different markets? Um, you know, have you already noticed that there are very different sort of understandings of what that means? Um, and you know, how do you see anthropology uh, so far contributing to to understanding that conversation? Yeah, look, there is huge. I mean, I'm now sitting in the global south in South Africa, which is a very different context. So maybe you're speaking to that vis-a-vis um, -vis a, a UK or European context. So the considerations are very different. Um, and it's, it's a context I'm only just kind of getting familiar with and grappling with. Um, 
so social sustainability has to speak to those different contexts, right? You know, sustainability full stop has to speak to those different contexts. And I think that's quite interesting in our one, the generally the exploration of ESG, um, which is where this all kind of tends to sit now, investors kind of driving towards the ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance agenda, that the E tends to remain static, right? You know, environmental impact, we, we know what it looks like. And in, in, in a sense, the kind of net zero ambitions or targets, well, differ. Um, you know, the, the routes or, or the, the solutions probably look pretty similar. Um, albeit, you know, there's a whole load of uh, things to think about, but, you know, look pretty similar. The S, however, in terms of social context, looks quite different, um, particularly if you're doing place-based impact, as in really looking at local context. Um, so it's important, you know, this is where anthropologists have a role, really in kind of really adjusting that context and, and that, um, so in place, let alone across national differences and national boundaries. Um, and a lot of people addressing that S now uh, overemphasize over meaningfully um, the need for place-based impact and place-based targets. In South Africa, um, there's a heavy emphasis on environmental. Um, uh, you know, net zero targets are, are real um, and will have a quite a dramatic impact on um, uh, the coal mining industry and, and various other kinds of industries that are uh, have underpinned South Africa's um, economy for some time. So it's quite a big um, area of focus at the moment. Um, but then the S comes in in terms of, you know, if there's a transition away from uh, coal towards more sustainable energy sources, how can it be fair? How can it be just? So just transition is a big conversation here particularly in a post-colonial context, which is just not for everyone. We're not talking equality here, we're talking equity. How do we bring um, uh, people who have been historically marginalized, um, provide the advantage that, that, that um, they've not um, been able to access um, or access as, 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 as much as they should um, until now. So how do uh, historically marginalized people benefit and contribute to the economy? Um, which is which is a very different kind of similar but different conversation to to the that going on in the UK. Out of curiosity, do you see an overemphasis on the E within ESG at this point? You know, or still up to this point, and maybe because it's a little easier to define. Overemphasis the E. Like it's been like over ten years of consideration of, of the E. Um, not not yeah. Not to say that we've got any solutions yet. So there's work to be done. But um, there has been. I, I, and I guess that's born out of. ESG has particularly been driven by a focus on, on risk. Um, so it's been driven by the investment industry um, that have considered ESG in the context of business risk, right? So um, the E uh, could be things like uh, the potential for flooding or erosion or uh, so, you know, posing a risk to business, posing a risk to, particularly when it comes to real estate, the value of a property asset, right? Um, so the E is easy to understand and, and see visibly happen, right? We can see environmental impact happen around us, right? I, so I think that's why there's been a focus on it, particularly when it comes to real estate, you know, the, what's the potential for harm um, and therefore um, loss of earnings that's, that's a result of um, the E, climate change um, and, and, and other environmental considerations. Um, the S is less visible, right? You know, you can't see the S change. I mean, we as 
proponents of social cultural change do see it because that's our focus area. But I think a lot of people, because it happens gradually and it is happening to us as well as alongside us, don't, it's not so visible. Um, and, but, but, and it's, it's still a, a core consideration, right? Um, there is such thing as social risk. Um, you know, there's a potential for um, social change to have a negative impact on one's um, business and, and, and in, in turn one's property, which is, you know, where we focus. Um, and so that's really what um, is driving the agenda here in South Africa, particularly, which is around their potential for there being a potential for social risk and how do you mitigate that? How do you um, address that before it happens um, as a means of, of um, protecting the value of your, your effort? Um, so, yeah, I think visibility has been quite key to ESG and how we think about it. And speaking of visibility, so so you're convener of this applied club, uh, the anthropology of in the built environment, connected to why the world needs anthropologists, which is sort of nested under EASA. And so obviously that's a great way for other anthropologists to to get involved, to learn more about the type of work that you do and the future of the space. But um, would you mind just sharing a little bit, you know, about your plans with that club? What, you know, from your perspective, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to take it? Yeah, so um, thanks for that question. Um, so similar to this podcast, um, it's, a, it's about communication, really. It's about sharing insights and knowledge around the application of anthropology. Um, so um, many people coming from academia want to, to work in the built environment. And, and by built environment, I mean all, you know, architecture all the way through to investment, right? So you've, you've got a number of different players um, thinking about how we build, design, operate, manage physical space. Um, so people from academia, from anthropology, and, but other social sciences, um, leaving academia, but, but also just looking for, um, for their next career move, um, are attracted by the idea of, of doing applied work um, in the built environment. And so I set up the Slack group to um, really just share knowledge and information with them. Um, but also at the same time, I was getting questions from developers, from asset owners, from the people I work with um, about anthropology. And, and, and um, I was engaging with um, clients who were really keen to um, employing anthropologists, right? So the, the Slack workspace is to kind of bring those two communities together. It's individuals coming from the social sciences and um, individuals in the built environment to really kind of come together and, and share knowledge, information, and actually also uh, matchmake in a way. So the success of the workspace has been that, you know, we've, uh, people have got jobs through it. People have managed to engage with each other meaningfully um, and get jobs um, because um, they've been able to demonstrate the value of anthropology um, and organizations have been open to it. Um, so that's what the Slack workspace is there for um, and the Applied Club is there for specifically. The Slack workspace was the start, so we've got about 360 members there now. Um, the Applied Club is, is, is really um, is a supporting organization um, and um, helps sh share the message. Um, about um, the Slack workspace and also what it is to be an anthropologist in a working in the built environment. Um, 
And we run monthly events really to activate this community. So we have a lunch and learn every last Thursday of the month. Um, tends to be around 12 p.m. GMT. Um, and that's an invited guest to come and speak about what they do um, and how they draw on social science or anthropological thinking and, and, and what they do practically. Um, so, for example, um, we've got a, a talk coming up from a developer who's developing co-living spaces but has a background in sociology. And so he's very motivated by community impact, community partnerships, uh, supporting um, diverse communities in the areas in which he develops and operates um, his residential spaces. So he's coming to talk to us. Um, but we've also had psychologists talking about um, the impact of lighting, particularly when it comes to well-being and health um, in urban spaces. We've had a planner, a town planner, talk about a conscientious urbanism. Um, uh, she's got a, she's got a background in geography, um, and so she's kind of got a, a um, she's developing a movement which is very much more addressed to how do we ensure that our approach to urbanism is sorry considerate urbanism, not conscientious, but conscientious and considerate when and in, in in with respect to um, urbanism. Great, thanks, and um, so that sounds great, and I'll certainly link to it in the show notes. How about also? Um, so the edited volume that you you co-edited, uh, speaking for the social catalog of methods, would you mind sharing a little bit about that? So that was born out of um, I mentioned a centre I was part of when I was a postdoctorate at Manchester University called Centre for Research on Social Cultural Change, and that was born out of a long conversation with a group of people around the social life of method or methods. So one of the threads as well as being part of a conversation about infrastructure, I was part of a conversation about um, methods and the methods we use across disciplines are not so much how they record the world, but what they do in the world. So um, as practitioners, our methods don't just act in the world as, and, and, and collect neutral information. They all very much also shape the framework of inquiry and, and shape the kinds of data that is um, you know, viable, the data that is, is, is meaningful to collect and they shape, um, you know, in a sense, they shape the, the world in which we collect it. Um, so it was, it, it was an area of inquiry focused on what methods do. Um, and so this book is really focusing on methods and what methods do, but with particular um, attention to the social and what the social is. And it's kind of speaking to what I was saying about, um, you know, anthropologists quite often are employed to do stuff, right? And uh, in, 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 in around public engagement and around stuff to do with people in around stuff to do with society, stuff to do with social engagement. And my role was kind of to understand the social and, um, explore and explain how, you know, how we'd create value for it. But what do we mean when we talk about the social? It's not really a group of people out there in the world, is it? It's kind of, it's um, something we create through our methods of inquiry. So this book is really focusing on that. What do methods do? What kind of categories do they create? And particularly what kind of social categories do they create? And so it's an exploration of methods in a practical way, like the interview um, and uh, the um, or a walk or um, uh, cultural probes, so kind of very, it's focusing on very practical methods, but then looking at the kind of social categories they, that are created through, through 
through those methods. So my paper focuses on the building tool. I'm uh, focusing on um, a project I worked with alongside some architects. And so I was explaining an role of an anthropologist in the context of a, um, a design competition where I worked alongside architects and architects regularly do building tours. They walk around buildings and they look at the, the way the space is being used and um, understand it. Um, it's, I guess, the kind of the, the, the fabric of the building. Um, and as an anthropologist, I had a, a lens on something different. So I, was, I focus on the tour as a method and the construction of community as a kind of form of social um, and how architects and anthropologists might think of that differently. Besides that, do you have anything upcoming that maybe you want to mention? Apart from the latest Lunch and Learn, which happens every Thursday, um, so last Thursday of the month, um, we've got a Lunch and Learn coming up. Um, and please check out the links that I think you're going to share, Matt, after the call in the description for, um, for more information on that. Um, I guess the, the latest thing to share is the um, Apply Club will be... Um, supported by University College London this year um, as a fellowship um, that I have with the anthropology department. So I hope that that'll just grow um, in importance and that we'll get some really great speakers um, and that it will become a little bit more formalized um, in the department so that the department itself can begin to um, build a platform um, with industry um, and for there to be a clear path for students coming out of their degrees um, so that's quite interesting. Um, yeah, and just watch this space. Stuff is always happening. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with you to learn a little bit more about your work, where would be a good what would be a good way? LinkedIn, uh, Gemma John at LinkedIn. Um, on LinkedIn, um, yeah, it's probably this or email, which is Gemma at humancity.co.uk. Well, Gemma, thank you for taking the time. Appreciate appreciate everything, and uh, enjoyed hearing your story. Great, thanks so much, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.